And I'd like the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Well, I haven't been with you for a month now from a preaching standpoint. I had a couple of weeks of study break and then back for our combined service and then off to Florida for a week visiting family. We had a good time down there and enjoyed the tropical regions and went to some of the some of the gardens in that part of the country that are just full of palm trees and things like that that grow year-round. Up here we have to see them in the terrariums at the Botanic Gardens. Down there they just grow all over the place. And we had a good time. We enjoyed that. It's been a month for me to think about this morning's sermon. Passage of scripture that I memorized decades ago. So it was easy to bring it up from time to time whenever God prompted me and meditate on it and think about the implications. And I want to remind you this morning a little bit of the background because I think sometimes we approach the Bible in a rather uh, strange fashion. We look at it as a book of pithy sayings or spiritual guidances or we tend to think of it as a book of doctrine and certainly it's all of those things. But in doing so, we sometimes forget that these were people who were being guided by the Holy Spirit, but ordinary people writing in circumstances of their time with a burden on their heart, in this case, for a church. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Rome. It's a pastoral letter. I was thinking about why in Ephesians 4 it says God has given in the church first apostles, it says that in Corinthians, but the same concept is in Ephesians, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then most people agree that pastors and teachers is a hyphenated term, pastor-teacher. And I think the reason for that is, practically speaking, God never intended us to read his word just for information. Teachers impart knowledge. But God never intended for us just to get smarter. He intended to change our lives. There's always a moral imperative. There's always an ought. You ought as a consequence. There's always a motivation to behavior that underlies all of Scripture. God is not just giving us information. It is information that we need to have in order to experience transformation. Paul's writing a letter to a church not just to impart a lot of doctrine that he has certainly done in the first nine chapters or first eleven chapters of this book. It's full of doctrine. These first eleven chapters have filled us with the knowledge of the meaning of salvation and redemption, what it is to be a saved person, child of God, follower of Jesus Christ, what it means. But the point of writing the letter was not just to inform them, but to transform them, 
to have an impact in the way they lived with each other and in the world. It was intended to grip their heart, capture their attention, and focus their energy on becoming something, not just knowing something. Becoming a Christ follower. Imitating the life. Manifesting the presence of God throughout the church. And I started thinking about the church that he was writing to, and I was struck by the similarities with our church. He was writing to a church, first of all, that was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles who had become Christians. And there was a big difference between a Jew and a Gentile. Jews had customs. They had laws. They had moral covenants. They had rules and regulations. They remained aloof from the general population. They did things their own way. They still do that. Go over to the North Shore, visit an Orthodox Jewish home, and you'll find they have two kitchens. How many people have two kitchens? They have two kitchens because one of them is absolutely kosher and set up for the ceremonial celebrations of the festivities of the year, and the other one is for kind of everyday stuff, and they can't mix and mingle things between them. Most of us can't relate to that very well. And these people in Rome, these Jewish believers, came out of that kind of a background. They already were thought weird by the Romans. Now they're in the church, along with Gentiles. And these Gentiles have all kinds of background. Some of them are, are, are very educated. Some of them are very cultured, sophisticated. Others of them are more barbaric. They're more kind of uncultured. Some of them have been worshipers of other religions, and some of them have been in some very strange cults, bizarre religions of the Roman world, worshiping multiple gods and idols. The Jews didn't eat like the Gentiles, and the Gentiles didn't always eat like each other. And there were language differences. They spoke the trade language of the day, which was Koine Greek. They, some of them spoke Latin, some of them spoke Hebrew, some of them spoke Aramaic. Some of them spoke other languages from other parts of the empire. So there were language differences, there were economic differences, there were all of these multifaceted differences. And I thought, that's not unlike our church. Right now, we have people who primarily understand the Spanish language, worshiping downstairs, right here. We're one congregation. We speak more than one language. We're a variety of ages. We come from different Social, social and economic backgrounds. We have varying degrees of education. Some of you have been in church all of your life. Some of you are brand new to church, relatively speaking. 
Some of you grew up with the hymns and the traditions of the church. Some of you never heard any hymns, and you have no traditions. I had occasion while I was out of town to visit a couple of other churches. I went to one evangelical free congregation in Muhammad, and they sing praise choruses, kind of like we do, but not like we do. You know, they have this fellow up there playing a guitar, and he does a great job. He's, he's a nice guy, and he does a great job, but I kept wanting to do something. You know, we, we do it differently. And uh, I don't know who all comprised that church. There are some professional people. There are some people from uh, the University of Illinois. There are people that are farmers by profession. They're worshiping together, and they have a style. It's different from our style. And then last week, uh, Rowena and I had a chance to go with her parents to our home church where we grew up, First Baptist Church of Brandon. Sat in an auditorium with about 2,500 other people in one of the four or five services of the weekend. Looking down at an orchestra of about 40 to 50 pieces and a choir of 50 pieces. One of the things I noticed was that every usher, every deacon, every participant in the service wore a coat and tie, a suit. Every staff member wore a suit. The choir was robed. The orchestra was dressed in black. And everything we did was to orchestration. Pipe organ, grand piano. I think I recognized my high school French horn teacher playing French horn in the horn section. I'm going to have to call and find out if that's who it was because I had heard she'd become a Christian. She wasn't when I had her as a teacher, but I heard she came to know Jesus Christ. It'd be interesting to find out if that is in fact who it was, but she was like at McDonald's from me <laughs> where I was sitting. I wasn't sure. And they sang choruses. But, oh, they didn't sing them like we sing them. <laughs> you know, when you put a full orchestra behind a chorus and uh, a pipe organ and a 50-voice choir, it just comes out sounding middle age. It just doesn't come out sounding with it. I mean, there's just no way. It's different. And everybody in a, in a suit and a white shirt and muted ties, I mean, they were... Austere. That's how Southern Baptists in Florida worship. And I thought they're different. I grew up there like that when I was there. But they're different. And so we put all these kinds together. We put people with no tradition in the midst of people with great tradition. We put people of different languages and cultures together in one body that we call the church. And Paul is writing to a letter, is writing a letter to a church that has that kind of diversity. And what he's ultimately getting at is how do you live for Jesus in unity and harmony as the body of Christ? How does it work when you bring this kind of amalgam together in one family called the Bride of Jesus Christ? How do you do that? 
And everything that he said in the first 11 chapters has been laying the foundation for the very practical how do you do it in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. And one of the things that he wanted to make unmistakably clear to that Roman church was that everyone starts out in the same soup. You know, we, we can't, none of us, that was two different sentences. I started one direction, went another for you grammarians. We cannot claim to begin any differently than anyone else. Well, I came up in a cultured family and I was educated and I understand the social graces and I'm not like the vile, dirty people in the streets. We're all sinners. Paul makes that abundantly clear. Jew, Gentile, highbrow, barbarian, moralist, you know, amoralist, immoralist. Doesn't matter. We all start out the same. We are all lost in sin. We are all undone in the presence of a holy God. We are all in need of a Savior. None of us can claim to have started any better off than anyone else as far as humanity goes. We have the same heart. And the Bible tells us that our heart is so wicked we can't even understand ourselves the depth of our depravity. For the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And he makes that unmistakably clear. I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. I don't care if you speak Latin or Koine Greek or Aramaic. I don't care what cultural background you have. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. Everyone is there. And then he presents to us the, the, the good news of the message. Jesus died for you. He gave his life for you. He shed his blood to cleanse your sin. He was buried and rose again that you might have life in him. He has given you his spirit to indwell you and guide you and empower you. He has given you the power of his spirit to live victoriously over the pull of sin. You can walk victoriously in Jesus Christ. And every single person that comes to Christ comes through the door of the cross. There's no exception. There's no other way. You can't do it any other way. So we're all alike in our sin, and we're all alike in our salvation. We all start out the same way, and we all arrive in relationship with God through the same path. I am the way, both the truth and the life, Jesus said. And then Paul says on the basis of that, he says, what do we have to say about this? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? What can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, nakedness, famine, peril, sword? Name it. What can separate you from the love of God? For I am convinced that neither height nor breadth nor things present or past nor any created thing in heaven or earth can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We have everything in Jesus that we need. We have had every provision made for us. God has received us all the same. 
He has accepted us into his family and the same basis through Jesus Christ. And we all started out undone, ungodly, and in need of salvation. So Paul comes to chapter 12. And he says, I urge you. This is the beginning of how it's done. Not how it plays out in my head, but how it looks in my life. Here is Christianity with feet. We're going to walk the walk now. Based on all that he has said, here is how you live together in the family of God and in the world. And there's a starting point. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The reason the word therefore is there is based on all I've just said and all Paul has explained. Therefore I urge you. And he uses words that involve intense emotion. Why does he say I urge you? What does that mean, I urge you? You can almost feel it, can't you? Urge you. Do you ever have people you love that you feel are about to make a mistake and you want to help them get it back together, get on the path? How do you feel inside when they're in the throes of that decision and you love them dearly and that you're concerned that they're going to make a bad choice? They might be a child. Uh, they might be. Uh, it doesn't have to be a young one. Could be a grown one. Might be a spouse. Might be a dear friend. Might be a family member. You know, and if you're smart, you know you can't command them because <laughs> you can't control them. How many of you parents of older kids have come to that conclusion? <laughs> yes. Okay. Good. You're. <laughs> I started to say you're the smart ones, but I don't know where that leaves the rest of you. But <laughs> hey, you know what? <laughs> it does no good to command. When you really love somebody, you're really committed to them, you really want them to do the right thing, and yet they're, they got their own mind and they got their own will and, and they're on the horns of a dilemma, they've got to make a decision. How do you appeal to them? What's going on inside of you? How do you feel? You want to urge them to do the right thing. You'd push them if you could. You want them to make the right choice. And it comes out of the depth of your being. You know, this is not some counselor sitting in the office saying, well, I think you ought to try this. You know, I, And I'm not disparaging counseling, but when there's an emotional investment in a person, when you're committed to that person, 
and you're concerned for them. You want them to do the right thing, make the right choice. And out of, out of the depths of your soul comes a yearning. Sometimes you can't even tell them that, you know? Sometimes I, I urge, I yearn, I, I have this going on inside of me, and God says, keep your mouth shut, just talk to me. Just don't say anything, you're only going to make it worse. Okay, but I want, I know, I'm urging you, he says, by the mercies of God. You know, here's the beauty of this. Paul is not just throwing out a suggestion here that you've got to figure out on your own. <laughs> he says, I'm urging you by the mercies of God. What, what is coming out of my heart and soul is also coming out of God's heart and soul. And I can't do a whole lot to help you because I'm just another man like you are. But God can do something for you. God can come to your aid. God can give you power. Look up that word mercy. Found out some interesting things. There's more than one Greek word that is translated mercy in the New Testament. This particular one is the same Greek word that the Jewish scholars used when they were translating the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures into Greek, what we call the Septuagint. When they came to the word viscera, those are the organs inside of you, viscera, they used this word, that we have translated here mercies to translate viscera. So there's something involved more than just an intellectual kind of impartation. There is, can I say, a gut commitment that's in here. There's a feeling associated with these mercies, not just with Paul's urging, but with God's responsiveness. From the depths of his being, in fact, the definition is the emotions, the longings, the manifestations of pity, compassions. It's the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians 1.3 when Paul says, May the God of all comfort comfort you. And the word mercies occurs in that context in God's comfort. That he's not just giving you a pat on the back and saying, oh, it'll be better. But he's coming alongside of you with his whole being out of his innermost self, as it were, in empathy toward you to comfort you from his heart, to wrap you in his arms. There's an emotional investment, but there's also God behind it. There's power here. So these mercies that... Paul is talking about coming to you in this decision comes from God's empathy, God's compassion, God's pity. You know, we don't like that word because none of us like to be pitiable. But you know, if you're God and we're us, we're pitiable. We need pity. We're more messed up than we can imagine. But God has pity, aren't you glad? He has compassion. 
You know, he, he, he cares. And he doesn't just come along and pat us on the back or, or give us a hug. You know, he comes along with power to do something for us. To make it possible to do what we need to do. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The word present, in this context and by its grammatical form, means a once-for-all commitment. What Paul is urging us to do is to make a decision that will have an impact for the rest of our lives. It's, it's not just a, this moment. Oh, I think I'll decide this today, and if I don't like it, I'll change my mind. Paul says, I'm urging you to make a commitment that is irrevocable. Jesus said, the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. Paul is saying, I want you to make a decision to follow this plow. I want you to make a decision to choose this path. I want you to present your bodies once and for all and take your hands off. So it's not a light decision. You know. And, and notice how it gets refined in our spiritual life. You made that kind of decision when you first came to Jesus Christ, didn't you? I hope you did. If you didn't, I'm concerned about your salvation right now. No one ever came to Jesus and said, Yeah, I agree, I'm a sinner and I really need to be forgiven. Uh, so if you don't mind, forgive my sin, but I'm going to keep living life the way I want to because I'm having a lot of fun right now and... Um, you know, I, I want to go to heaven when I die, but don't bug me too much. Nobody ever came to Jesus like that. If you did, you better rethink what happened. We come to Christ with a commitment to turn from our sin and turn to God and choose his way, but the problem is we don't have a very good understanding of what that all really means. Paul has asked us to make a presentation one other time in this letter, in chapter 6. He says, yield your body and your members as instruments to righteousness. Make a presentation of yourselves to be instruments of righteousness. In other words, recognize that, that you have been bought with a price, and God, God owns your parts, <laughs> your mind, your mouth. You can't use it the way you want to use it. I mean, he's in charge now. It's a, so present your... But now he's taking it into further refinement. He's saying, I'm asking you to make an all-out commitment that is a watershed in your life. I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Now, there's a certain contradiction in the term living sacrifice because most sacrifices don't survive the sacrifice. That's why they're called sacrifices. They die in the sacrifice. 
But Paul is talking about something different. He's talking about a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God. And what he asks us to give to God is our bodies. Now, I did a fair amount of meditation on that because it puzzled me initially why the Apostle Paul would say, give your bodies to God, when Jesus said, give your heart and mind and soul and strength. I mean, my body's going to wear out. Traveling around, flying in airplanes, I'm so thankful. Those of you that are road warriors, I, you have my empathy. I'm so glad I don't have to fly somewhere every, every week of my life. They have these new seat, new seating uh, options now in the middle of the aircraft called extra leg room. And I found out that for $50 a ticket per leg of the journey, that's $150 each, we could have sat there and had more leg room. You know how they get more leg room? They widen the space between those seats by crunching the space in the seats behind them. <laughs> So you have less leg room when you're in the back of the bus. And when you have my legs, that's a problem. But anyway, I'm on a rabbit trail for sure. But it made me aware that I have a failing body. Okay, that's my point. <laughs> my body is failing. If you're under 25, you may not be able to relate to that. If you're over 50, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. It's amazing what happens between 25 and 50. Uh, you, you heard in places you didn't even know you owned before. And I'm th so why is Paul saying, present your bodies? My body's falling apart. But heart, mind, soul, strength, you know, I can do that if I'm laying in a hospital bed. I can give God my, my heart, that not, not the beating organ in my chest, but my, my center of being, my passion. I can give Him my mind. I can give him my soul, my emotions. I can, I can give him uh, my strength, even if I have none physically. I can give him all the energy I've got, no matter what my condition. That makes sense. And Jesus said, this is the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your mind, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. But Paul says, give your body as a living sacrifice. And I'm saying to God, what's the point? And then, you know, the light comes on. All of that other stuff is in my body, because this is where I live. Wherever I go, I take my body with me. If I didn't, you wouldn't know I was there. And, and furthermore, I wouldn't be able to do anything. I need my body on this planet to manifest. Am I getting too weird for you? I'm preaching this morning, I hope, from the Spirit of God. But you know what, you know what you're hearing? My vocal cords. They're, they're in my throat. You're hearing my vocal cords. And you're hearing it with your ears. There's an eardrum in there doing this, and it's setting up vibrations and little bones that's making things happen. And, and you're connecting with your body. Everything that I do, be, act, say, feel, think, it, it's going on in my body in this planet. 
Paul cannot give us a more inclusive term that not only includes all of our being, but includes our mobility, includes our behavior, includes our actions, it includes everything. In other words, he's saying sell out. Lock, stock, and barrel. All of your being. You are a tabernacle. You're a tent. You're a vessel where you live, but also where the Holy Spirit lives. Give him that home to manage as he pleases. Give him your body as a living sacrifice. There's that contradiction in terms, because sacrifices die. But we're not supposed to die. We're supposed to go on living. We're supposed to go on talking, communicating, loving, engaging, behaving, acting, serving, doing things. We're alive. We don't, we don't have our throats slit and the blood drained and burned on the altar. We go on. Ah, but the dying part has to do with your will. So that he can now guide your vessel, your mind, your will, your emotions, your heart, your, your hands, your feet, your strength. All about, he is in charge. Paul says, I'm asking you to make a sellout commitment. I'm asking you to turn your life over to him without reservation. What does that mean? Some of you right now are thinking probably he's meaning I should show up and help set up for one of those classes on Tuesday. But that's not what I mean. That may be part of it, but... I'm talking about what you buy and where. I'm talking about what you eat. I'm talking about what you watch, what you read how you spend your money, what hobbies you pursue, what work you pursue. I'm talking about your career. I'm talking about the person you date. I'm talking about where you go to school after you go to get out of the one you have to go to. What college, what university, what vocational school, what job. I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about what car you drive and what house you live in. I'm talking about what you do for entertainment. Paul says, give your life. To God to control now a lot of people when you start getting that down to that kind of thing they start get you know they start getting uncomfortable because that means I have to give up control what if I don't want to do what he wants <laughs> what if I want to pursue something he's not a part of what if I want to have a hobby that he doesn't want me to have? What if I want to go to a school that he doesn't want me to go to? What if I want to date somebody that he doesn't want me to date? What if I want to eat something that he doesn't want me to eat? 
you say, you know, I've never heard God get that specific. <laughs> Can I tell you something? God knows how to communicate with you if you're willing to listen. So if you've never heard him give you direction, it's not because he's not wanting to. It's because you're not listening with the willingness to obey. That's a funny thing about God. He will not he will not give you suggestions for life and then give you the option to decide if you're going to do it or not. He won't even bother to talk to you until you're ready to do whatever he says. God does not waste his words. If he knows that your heart is such that I, I wouldn't do that. If I knew what it was, I wouldn't go there. God's not even going to tell you. So, if you've never heard his voice, it may be because you've never listened with an open heart. You've never committed your body as a living sacrifice. Because he will guide you. He wants to. He wants to direct your life. He wants to, to guide every step of your way. He wants that kind of leadership. And about this time, we're saying, man, you mean I don't get to do nothing I want to do? Well, I didn't exactly say that, but if that's your attitude, I want what I want. God, you can have 50% over here, and I want this 50. I'll tell you what, you can have 80%, just leave me this 20. You know, God says, I don't play that way. I want it all. If you want my leadership in your life, I want all of yours. Because I'm not going to come to a certain point and then step aside. It's an all or nothing commitment. And until we come to that way, do you know what we are? We're carnal Christians. You know what a carnal Christian is? Someone who is born again, who has the Holy Spirit living in their lives and who's still maintaining a certain amount of self-will, and when you get a bunch of carnal Christians together, we make a mess. We can't get along with each other. We fight over the music we sing. We fuss about lifestyles. We argue about different ministries. We can't figure out how to get it together. We take no interest in... It's Life lived in the flesh with an eye toward God, and it's half-baked any way you look at it. And the, the troubles in the church arise from people who are maintaining their own will in many areas. And Paul says... I'm asking you to begin the practical application of all that I've taught you. I'm asking you to begin by devoting your body a living sacrifice, making a presentation, taking your hands off, letting God have control. And then Paul says, about the time we're, we're ready to kind of back out, Paul says, this 
only makes sense. Read it, end of verse 1, which is your logical service of worship. Now, I don't know why our Bibles, some of them translated that spiritual. Because this word that occurs in verse 12.1 only occurs twice in the New Testament. The other place is 1 Peter 2.2. 2. And in neither place does it really mean spiritual. In fact, there is a word for spiritual, and this isn't it. I don't know why our translators did that. Maybe, maybe they didn't know what to do because... The word is so rare in the New Testament. But let me tell you the Greek word. I'm going to pronounce the Greek word for you, and you tell me if you can figure out the English equivalent. Logikon. Does that sound like logical to you? Logikon. That's what it is. Paul says this is logical. I'm asking you to take your hands off your life, to give yourself to God without reservation, to let Him run every minute. I'm asking you to give Him total control. I'm asking you to surrender your goals, surrender your careers, surrender your hobbies, surrender your diet, surrender your sleep, surrender your family, surrender everything about you and all of your choices to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and it only makes sense. It's logical. Why is it logical? Because He loves me. He loves me. How shall not He who freely has given me Jesus Christ not also give me everything with Him? He will meet all of my need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He knows my thoughts before I even think them. Have you ever had the occasion of sitting down with a very close friend or family member or loved one and you're trying to explain what's in your, in your mind, in your heart, and, and, you, and you know they're not getting it? You know? And you say, you know, this is what I'm feeling. They say, oh, I, I understand. And, and they tell you, they give you feedback, and you think, no, they don't understand. They don't have a clue. Let me try again. You try again. And... Do, you, do you ever, is it just me? Do you ever sometimes feel lonely because you can't seem to make yourself understood? the people around you aren't getting it, and you would like them to get it. Maybe, I, maybe I'm just the only one like that. But God always gets it. God knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your heart. He knows your desires. He knows your needs. You know, we have goals. We think we know what we want. We don't know what we want. We... We go off in life in pursuit of things, you know, and we, and we get our little grubby paws around them and they turn to sand. Those who deal in finance call that buyer's remorse when it's a, a thing, you know. Jan, how many people have you talked to that have spent big bucks on something they thought they wanted, now they're in debt, and it's like it doesn't even meet their need, doesn't satisfy them. In fact, the debt's worse than the desire. Now they're in trouble. 
And then we go after something else. And we go over here and we go over there. We're looking for something. We don't know what we want. I think this career would, would fulfill my needs and make me happy. You know? But we don't know what we want. I had some very clear ideas of what would make me happy when I was 15. And when I was 16, I was considering taking my life in suicide because nothing made sense. That's when I cried out to God and said, if you don't do something, I'm going to end this miserable mess. But 16. Where's my head? But I, all everything had become disillusioned. And all my goals seemed out of reach. We don't have any idea what we want, but he knows what we need. He knows the longings of our heart. He was there when we were skillfully wrought in our mother's womb. He knows our gifts. He knows our aptitudes. He knows our attributes. He knows how he's put us together. He knows his desires for us. And he longs to bless us. Listen, friends, when we talk about this sacrifice thing, you know, people see two categories of Christians. They see those that are going to heaven and then going out doing whatever they want, having fun. And then they see this super sanctimonious group that, you know, I'm a dedicated Christian and my life is miserable. And they just have this impression that, that this you've got to be a monk to be sold out like this. But God's not talking about being weird. He's talking about, I came that you could have a life in all of its abundance. I want to give you life that's so full you can't contain it. I want you to be bubbling over with life. I want you to be full of joy. I want you to have fun. I want to bless you. I want your life to have meaning and impact and, and make a difference in the world. I want you to be something in me. Wow, we think we've got it figured out and we don't have a clue. God is the one that understands it all and knows our heart and has made us and shaped us and fashioned us with a desire only to bless us and love us. Paul says, it only makes sense. This is your logical service of worship because this is the thing that makes the most sense. You want to keep a peace back for yourself. You want to be in charge. You want to make decisions and run your own show. And you're going to run right into a wall. And God says, I want you to give it to me without reservation. I want you to take your hands off. I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto me. And I will fill you with my presence. I will bless you in your life. I will lead you in the ways that I have chosen for you. I will give you satisfaction. I will give you peace that goes beyond comprehension. I will give you joy welling up like a fountain. I will give you rivers of joy. I will flood your life with good things. Oh, man. Paul says it only makes sense you start here and god will take us along we're about to get into a lot of things in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 that have to do with how we live with each other and in our families and in the world but it begins with devotion
make a decision. Present yourselves to God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Father, I want to come to you this morning in Jesus' name. And, you know, I confess on behalf of all of us, we, we struggle here. We really do. Because we have the feeling that there are some parts of our life we can do better than you. And sometimes it's fearful. It's frightening to make this kind of sold-out commitment. It's unsettling. We're losing control. (laughs) At least that's what it feels like when we take our hands off the wheel of our life. Move over. Let you sit in that driver's seat. Let you have charge. What if I don't like where you want to go? What if I don't want to do what you want to do? But, oh God, you have invited us to taste. Oh, taste the Lord. Taste and see that he is good. That he is merciful. Lord Jesus, you have said, I have come to give you life in all of its abundance. Father, please come to us this morning. Speak to our hearts. Urge us from your depth of your being to present ourselves to you, living sacrifices, dead to self but alive to God in Christ Jesus, that you might do with us as you please, And we'll be some of the most joyful, fun-loving, excited, enthused bunch of people on the planet. Because we really get it. And we've really got it. And it's you, Lord. It's you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.